Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Andrew Feufer from Franciscan University of Steubenville, giving a talk entitled Correcting the Caricature, God and Kant. This talk was part of the Must Morality Be Grounded in God conference sponsored by the Graduate Philosophy Department at Franciscan University of Steubenville. This paper will offer a simple propideutic into several salient aspects of Kantian ethics and rational theology in order to demonstrate the necessity of God in Kantian ethics. It will be argued that the loss of God fatally compromises Kantian morality. This will be demonstrated by considering some common objections to those aspects of the Kantian system which are being affirmed. Clarification will also be offered for some of the commonly misunderstood or neglected elements of Kantian ethics, which are essential to a holistic view of Kantian morality and essential to the integration of Kantian ethics into a coherent worldview which incorporates his rational theology. The argument advanced in this paper seeks to demonstrate that theism and reason are not at cross purposes and that a rationalistic system of ethics may include God in a prominent and deeply meaningful way. Kant conceives of a position commonly known as the argument from morality, which acknowledges that the divine being is in fact closed off to our limited knowledge through speculative reason, but whose existence can be postulated as a necessity of practical reason and our relation to the moral law. While this is not so much a proof as a justification, it is nevertheless found rationally as a postulate of practical reason, a necessary condition of and for morality. This is achieved to the ultimate possibility of the summum bonum, something which does not seem possible, yet is necessary for our dedication to the moral law. This is, accordingly, a need from an absolutely necessary point of view, and justifies its presupposition not merely as a permitted hypothesis, but as a postulate from a practical point of view. And, granted that the pure moral law inflexibly binds everyone as a command, and not as a rule of prudence, the upright man may well say, I will that there be a God, that my existence in this world be also an existence in a pure world of understanding beyond natural connections, and finally that my duration be endless. I stand by this without paying attention to rationalizations, however little I may be able to answer them or to oppose them with others more plausible, and I will not let this belief be taken from me. For this is the only case in which my interest, because I may not give up anything of it, unavoidably determines my judgment. In Kant's view, it is not rational to pursue something unless the thing which is being pursued is actually obtainable. Hence the summum bonum, the necessary connection between moral virtue and happiness must be attainable, although there is no clear correlation between moral worth and happiness as far as can be determined through one's experience of the world. There must necessarily be some other force which ensures and guarantees that the necessary connection between one's moral worthiness and happiness somehow sees fruition. Thus, the postulates of practical reason emerge. Morality necessarily entails God. This is not because morality is derived from God as the divine command theory would state. But rather, without God, morality loses its grounding and becomes irrational. There are several reasons for this. First, the moral law is rational and binds agents categorically. As such, it is ordered to the universal, entailing not only that moral agents should act on maxims which can be universalized, but also that they should seek to develop holy wills in perfect conformity with the moral law. Second, while seeking to develop a perfectly holy will entails doing one's duty, duty itself is non-consequentialist and thus is not a guarantor of happiness. In fact, quite the contrary is true and the virtuous person must often choose duty over happiness. Nevertheless, it is rational to assume that virtue and happiness ought to be paired together. Therefore, it becomes necessary to postulate a supreme being who facilitates this pairing. It is through God's necessary relationship to morality and the summum bonum that what little we can know of a supersensible reality such as God can be found. This argument from morality provides a rational basis for belief in God and also helps to insulate morality from corruption. 
Morality is still directly the result of rational legislation of the autonomous moral agent. If the moral law were merely a blind obedience to God's directives, and one were to undertake such adherence from a desire for reward or a repulsion for punishment, one would be acting heteronymously and would utterly obliterate any moral worth one's actions might have had. In addition, the postulate of God serves another practical purpose. Without God, morality becomes hopelessly unfounded. Mere adherence to the moral law without the possibility of the summum bonum amounts to little more than delusion. While it is clear that the Kantian formulation one conforms to the moral law for no reason other than it is one's duty to do what is right is ordained by reason and that to act on account of one's own happiness constitutes a spurious maxim based upon inclination, for morals are not the properly the doctrine of how we are to make ourselves happy, but we are how we are to become worthy of happiness. Nevertheless, without some view of desert, without a real connection between moral worth and happiness, namely the summum bonum, Moral despair would set in, and one would come to believe that there would be no real point in being moral, and further, there would be no moral accountability. The virtuous and the wicked would both meet the same end in the dust of eternity. Kant demonstrates the futility of such a moral enterprise in the critique of judgment, where he envisions a truly moral man who does not believe in God and seeks to act in accord with his moral duty with no consideration of his own happiness or profit. Deceit, violence, and envy will always surround him. Although he himself be honest, peaceable, and kindly, and the righteous men with whom he meets will, notwithstanding all their worthiness of happiness, be yet subjected by nature which regards not this, to all the evils of want, disease, and untimely death, just like the beasts of the earth. So it will be until one wide grave engulfs them together, honest or not, it makes no difference, and throws them back, who were able to believe themselves the final purpose of creation, into the abyss of the purposeless chaos of matter from which they were drawn. The purpose then, which this well-intentioned person had and ought to have before him in his pursuit of moral laws, he must certainly give up as impossible. Kant would never accept an absurdum practicum, and while he believes duty itself to be a sufficient motivator for morality, it is also clear that as a practical matter, the summum bonum must also be achievable. And thus one may say with conviction that there is a God, purely from practical necessity and a moral faith grounded in hope. For God is necessary to provide the possibility that moral virtue and happiness coincide and that moral worth and happiness correspond. To draw out the necessity of God to Kantian ethics, it is helpful to examine some pertinent objections and respond to them. One of the best known critics from the argument for morality is the atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey, who argues in his miracle of theism that the argument for morality is flawed because while the summum bonum entails that there be a God by necessity, we can just as easily reach the conclusion that there is no God and therefore no summum bonum. However, what Mackey does not account for is that Kant notes the summum bonum is necessary for the very notion of moral enterprise, leaving it the crucial middle term upon which all morality hinges. Kant explicates this position in the Critique of Judgment, where he asserts that while one cannot conclude that he is free from his duty if he should come to the view that there is no God, the man who does not believe that the summum bonum is possible is left with moral despair and is unable to do his duty, as I noted in the passage I read before. As such, he must act on the moral faith that the highest good is in fact achievable and that his moral strivings are not in vain. Thus, he must for practical purposes at least posit the idea of God, for his own finite agency is limited and cannot bring this highest good into being. Well, his experience of the world would also indicate that there is no direct relationship, causal or otherwise, between moral worth and happiness. Consequently, such a man would find himself needing to postulate a god, for the very idea is critical to morality. On this point, Alan Wood clearly and simply states that we do not believe the highest good to be possible because we want it to be possible. We believe it to be possible because we must do so if we are to rationally continue our pursuit of it. 
A duty for the sake of duty, or an obligation for the sake of obligation, would be viciously circular, and that's not at all what Kant asserts. Moral agents recognize that they ought to do their duty because they rationally recognize the objective value of a morally good will which conforms to what reason demands. The morally good will fulfills human nature as free and rational beings. For in being, in being moral, we are truly free. We're conversely acting according to inclination and heteronomy, diminishes our freedom, and thus goes against our nature by reducing us to mere animal objects, subject to being determined by antecedent physical and psychological causes. Morality is an orientation of the will towards the good. In particular, the summum bonum is the end the will is targeting when it acts in conformity with the moral law. Kantian duty with its strongly felt imperative ought, an imperative ought so profound and unyielding that it demands conformity without exception, even in the most dire of circumstances, must be grounded on at least the possibility of this highest good. Such an obligation could never be based on finite goods which are merely pleasant or subjectively satisfying or even valuable for their own sake, for in each of these cases the finite nature of such a good would yield a finite obligation. How else could Kantian ethics provide such a deeply non-consequentialist and obstinately inviolable obligation? How could we be compelled by a law to obey, even to the thwarting of all of our inclinations, or in spite of the looming threat that the world may perish? Only by the orientation of our will to the highest good, the summum bonum, can our moral strivings find the appropriate basis for such an implacable duty. Without the summum bonum, we would be limited to a world of finite goods. And while those goods might be able to impose upon us some kind of value response, or possibly even an obligation, nevertheless, those realities would be insufficient to posit a truly inviolable duty. Other goods might be of greater worth or perhaps of comparative worth. In such a world, duty becomes contingent and relative. The most damning thing of all is the loss of desert. The summum bonum itself assures that worth and happiness coincide, resulting in a necessary harmony between the two aspects of the good, virtue and happiness. Removing the possibility of such a harmony results in a bifurcation of the good, and its split aspects are individually insufficient for morality. Consequently, either the desire for happiness must be the motive to maxims of virtue, or the maxim of virtue must be the efficient cause of happiness. The first is absolutely impossible, because maxims that put the determining ground of the will in the desire for one's happiness are not moral at all and can be the ground of no virtue. But the second is also impossible, because any practical connection of causes and effects in the world as a result of the determination of the will does not depend upon the moral dispositions of the will, but upon knowledge of the laws of nature and the physical ability to use them for one's purposes. Consequently, no necessary connection of happiness with virtue in the world adequate to the highest good can be expected from the most meticulous observance of moral laws. Now, since the promotion of the highest good, which contains this, con this connection in its concept, is an a priori necessary object of our will and inseparably bound up with the moral law, the impossibility of the first must prove the falsity of the second. If, therefore, the highest good is impossible in accordance with practical rules, then the moral law which commands us to promote it must be fantastic and directed to empty, imaginary ends and must therefore in itself be false. Removing God in the summum bonum breaks Kantian ethics and uh, topples the postulates like dominoes. If perfect virtue along with perfect happiness correlated by desert is no longer possible, it stands to reason that it is no longer possible to perfect the human soul since perfect virtue is no longer attainable. For this reason, the second postulate, immortality of the soul, is also lost since it follows that if human perfection in terms of virtue is no longer possible, one can no longer postulate the eternity needed to cultivate that perfection. Ought implies can works both ways, and no one can be obliged to pursue what is impossible, nor can one reasonably postulate what would be necessary to accomplish something unattainable. 
In this way, it becomes clear just how important God and the Summa Bonum are, because their removal breaks Kantian ethics and leaves the moral universe a barren wasteland, while at the same time bleeding into other aspects of a coherent worldview, thus diminishing the value of the human person as well. As for happiness, Kant himself asserts that morality is not and cannot be a system by which our happiness or the happiness of others is pursued. Put simply, any schema whose purpose is simply to maximize human happiness without regard for desert cannot properly be called moral. Nevertheless, these types of non-ethics, views akin to something like a utilitarianism or a Rawlsianism, are the best that can be found in a world without the summum bonum, and thus God, which would fatally undermine the moral enterprise, making the most rational or appropriate view one of nihilism or egoism, such as one would find in Nietzsche or Rand. A humanist might object that there are reasons to show concern for others or to work for mutual enrichment. However, this is delusion, as Nietzsche rightly points out. While it is true that some people might cooperate out of necessity and self-interest, it does not follow that cooperation would be the most rational course of action in all situations. Only the weak would consistently cherish cooperation, and even then would abandon it when it became advantageous. While the only others who follow such a path would be those who have falsely accepted the lie of morality, perpetuated by the weak in order to shackle them, along with those who only seemingly buy into the spirit of the cooperation as a facade so that they might more easily manipulate others. If the Nietzschean Superman were to choose to eschew cooperation for its own benefit, if he could truly inflict his will upon others and take what he desires with impunity, and if, most crucially, there weren't even the possibility of the summum bonum, thus eliminating any objective basis for desert, rendering justice a falsehood and hope a lie, how could anyone say that what he is doing is wrong? In such a world, there would be neither goodness nor duty, no morality at all. Someone could object that the Nietzschean Superman is not being fair, but with no objective values, why should anyone cherish fairness or even principle? Especially when an individual may be able to secure a greater share of his own happiness without reprisal in what has become an immoral zero-sum game. The summum bonum is the very thing which establishes desert, and without it, fairness is a fantasy for the foolish. Life would be like poker, and one would play to win. Within the realm of Kantian ethics, there is an objection to the zero-sum game. After all, wouldn't consistently following the categorical imperative serve to make the summum bonum a reality even without divine agency? In reply, there is much to be said. First and foremost, the distinction must be made that the summum bonum does not consist in merely rewarding virtue and punishing vice. Rather, it is perfect virtue and perfect happiness bonded together by worth. Hence, the perfectly happy agent is perfectly virtuous and as such deserves to be perfectly happy. It is not sufficient to merely promote a connection between the two aspects of the good, nor to approximate their union extrinsically, but rather, for it to truly be the summum bonum, the relation between the two must be intrinsic. Given the known constitution of the universe, it is clear that such an intrinsic connection lies beyond the efficacy of human agency alone. Second, Kant himself notes that even the most scrupulous adherent of the moral law cannot count on others to consistently or uniformly follow that law. Third, it is not possible for human beings to bring about the summum bottom because it is not possible for human agents to unfailingly adhere to the categorical imperative. That will require some clarification. Surely, if agents ought to be moral, then they can be. For if conforming to the law were beyond their power, deviating from it would be something for which they could not be called blameworthy. This is another crucial distinction which will unfortunately have to be addressed in only a cursory way for brevity's sake. The answer lies in Kant's concept of radical evil. Man is evil by nature, and as a fallen race has inclinations which are contrary to the moral law. Thus, in spite of his best moral efforts, it is inevitable that even the best of us fails in his moral strivings due to, human, due to the human condition and this moral affliction. 
Conversely, God has no duty because he has a perfect holy will and thus never feels the tug of inclinations contrary to the law. As such, when we form our maxims in conformity with the categorical imperative, we align it with the moral law as would be rationally willed by all moral agents, including God. In this way, our duty is rightly understood as a divine command, which intensifies the force of the imperative ought. In this way, the moral law leads to the concept of the highest good as the object and final end of pure practical reason to religion. That is the recognition of all duties as divine commands, not as sanctions. That is chosen in themselves contingent ordinances of another's will, but as essential laws of every free will in itself, which must nevertheless be regarded as commands of the supreme being, because only from a will that is morally perfect, holy, and beneficent, and at the same time all-powerful, so through the harmony with this will can we hope to attain the highest good, which the moral law makes our duty to take as object of our endeavors. Here again, then, everything remains disinterested and grounded only on duty, and there is no need to base it on incentives and fear and hope, which, if they became principles, would destroy the whole moral worth of actions. The moral law commands me to make the highest possible good in a world the final object of all my conduct, but I cannot hope to produce this except by the harmony of my will with that of a holy and beneficent author of the world. And although in the concept of this highest good, as that of a whole in which the greatest happiness is represented is connected to the most exact proportion with the greatest degree of moral perfection, which is possible in creatures, my own happiness included, this is nevertheless not the determining ground of the will that is directed to promote the highest good. It is instead the moral law, which on the contrary limits by strict conditions my unbounded craving for happiness. For this reason, again, Morals is not properly the doctrine of how we are to make ourselves happy, but of how we are to become worthy of happiness. Only if religion is added to it does there enter in the hope of someday participating in happiness to the degree that we have been intent upon not being unworthy of it. Of course, it seems as though one could object to the proposition that Kantian ethics if the summum bonum is a sham by claiming that it introduces inclination and heteronomy and thus corrupts the system, making it self-contradictory. Kant, however, does not posit that God rewards or punishes agents for their conduct, and in fact clearly distances himself from this view. If God directly rewarded or punished agents for their conformity or lack thereof to the moral law, it would indeed taint all actions with inclination. The outer actions might have the appearance of conformity with the law, but the inner disposition of men's wills, where the real moral value of their maxims lies, would be oriented in such a way that would be indifferent to the law for its own sake, but would rather be directed towards earning a reward or avoiding punishment or loss. As such, their wills would be contra law, their actions morally suspect, and their worthiness and agency diminished by heteronomy. Alan Wood states this clearly in his book Kant's Moral Religion. Thus, happiness, or any other end for that matter, if made the motive of the will, results in heteronymous action. Thus, happiness must have nothing to do with the motivation of the will. But this clearly does not say that happiness must have nothing to do with the ends or objects the morally good man sets for himself in obedience to the law. If one pursues the summum bonum, banking on it as an eternal reward, a mere means to enter into the state of bliss, that would be heteronomy. And further, one would violate the categorical imperative in doing so. Suppose someone helps an old lady cross the street or volunteers at a soup kitchen expecting his eternal reward. Such a person would be using the people who he ought to have been helping solely out of beneficent duty and would now be reducing them to a mere means. However, if one were to dispassionately do his duty to help the old lady and feed the hungry at the soup kitchen out of a dispassionate respect for what reason demands, expecting nothing in return, then the act has true moral merit. Understood in this way, it can be made plain that the summum bonum doesn't taint Kantian ethics. Hence, notions like Theodore Green's view that Kant introduced God as the great paymaster are mistaken. It should be noted that God is a rational being, in fact, a perfectly rational being, and so it would, in fact, be morally wrong to use or instrumentalize God in this way. 
Furthermore, Kant isn't seeking to engage in Freudian wish fulfillment. The role of God in Kantian ethics is not to make the universe conform to man's needs and longings, but rather to provide what reason demands. Further, Kant would assert that no one could actually lay a claim on the summum bonum. No man, no matter how upright he may appear or believe himself to be, can actually say with true conviction that he is a morally good man. We have already examined radical evil. However, Kant also notes that there may never have been even a single act which was done from pure duty. Nevertheless, the moral man does his duty to the best of his ability and promotes the summum bonum with a hope and trust that God's final end for rational beings will attain in the world and that his moral endeavors are not in vain. It is due to this profound hope in the summum bonum that a man has reason to believe that he can overcome his own innately evil disposition in pursuit of perfect virtue, though that falls beyond the limits of his finite agency, and thus may even be able to participate in that joy which is proper to a virtuous rational being, a joy which it is objectively good for the rational being to possess, for it is in measure to his worth as a moral agent and the moral law within him. This hope and trust opens up the beautiful harmony between Kantian rational theology and ethics, whereby Kant can appeal to grace, granting an outlet for God's participation in our arduous quest for holiness and assuring, in spite of our inadequacies, that ought truly does imply can. For despite the fall, the injunction that we ought to become better men resounds unabatedly in our souls. Hence, this must be within our power, even though what we are able to do is in itself inadequate, and though we thereby only render ourselves susceptible of a higher and for us inscrutable assistance. The argument presented has hopefully provided some illumination into the necessity of God for Kantian ethics. While it is true that a man who does not believe in God may absolve himself from duty for that reason alone, the loss of God is also the loss of the summum bonum the crucial middle term, which is essential to the very idea of morality, for it alone enables agents to rationally do their duty without a deeply troubling antimony and a resulting sense of despair and futility. The result of this antimony is an absurdum practicum which utterly breaks Kantian ethics and undermines duty. It has also endeavored to demonstrate that Kantian ethics and rational theology work in tandem, allowing us to discern within the limits of reason alone some attributes of the inscrutable divinity in whom we place our trust. Finally, it has sought to show that our duty gives us more than a mere obligation. It gives us hope. Thank you for your time and attention. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.